Good evening. Welcome to the Athenaeum. Uh, my name is Nancy Terulli, and I am a, uh, an Athenaeum member uh, and a proud member of the Civil War Discussion Group. And uh, we found this book a long time ago, so you, this is why we were so excited that Karen Abbott was coming here. Um, one of the things you should know is the book that uh, she's going to be talking about tonight was um, Option for Sony for a miniseries, so we'll have something else to look forward to. Karen Abbott is the New York Times bestselling author of Sin in the Second City. Looks like a good one. American Rose, and most recently, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, which was named one of the best books of 2014 by Literary Lib Library Journal, Christian Science Monitor, Amazon, and Flavor Wire. A native of Philadelphia, she now lives in New York City, where she's at work on her next book. We're delighted to welcome Karen Abbott. So much, Nancy, for that lovely introduction, and for all of you coming out here tonight, and um, for being invited to Boston. It's really a thrill to be back here, um, especially you know considering it's the hotbed of abolitionist sediment. And being that I'm always interested in the seamier side of history, um, I particularly enjoyed passing General Joseph Hooker's statue as I walked along Beacon. Um, you have to love General Hooker. Um, but I usually start off this talk by telling you a little bit about how I became interested in this topic and these women. Um, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, and in 2001, I moved to Atlanta. Um, and it was quite a culture shock. Uh, if anybody is here has spent some time in the Deep South, you, you might imagine. Um, I had to get used to seeing the occasional Confederate flag on the lawn, uh, hearing the jokes about the War of Northern Aggression. Um, and just realizing that the Civil War seeped into daily life and conversation down south in a way it never does up north. And that point was really driven home for me one day uh, when I was stuck in traffic on Route 400, uh, which is Atlanta's most horrendous thoroughfare, um, for two hours behind a pickup truck with a bumper sticker that read, don't blame me, I voted for Jeff Davis, um, who of course was the president of the Confederacy. Uh, so I sat behind this bumper sticker for two hours and had quite a bit of time to really think about the Civil War in more detail. And my mind always goes to, well, what were the women doing? And not just any women, what were the bad women doing? What were the defiant women doing? And so I began doing a little bit of research into women's uh, roles during the Civil War. Uh, many women did things like darn socks and sew uniforms for the soldiers. A lot of them held bazaars to raise money for supplies for the soldiers. And a few women went a little bit further than that, and they became informal recruiting officers um, who would shame any man who shirked his duty to fight. And there were several cartoons celebrating this. Here's one of my favorites. Uh, here's a, a woman wearing uh, a uniform, looming over her cowering fiance, saying, either you enlist or I enlist. Um, and some women were known to send crinolines, these you know, big poofy skirts, to their fiancés and say, wear this crinoline or volunteer. Um, the men inevitably volunteered after receiving one of those. Uh, and some women dared to go even further than that. And I was interested in finding four such women, uh, two for the North, two for the South, who lied, seduced, wheedled, plundered, spied, drank, avenged, stole, and murdered their way through the war. And I'm pretty confident I found four who did exactly that. 
And my goal for the book was to sort of weave their stories together and create a tapestry um, and, and present the story of the Civil War in a way it hopefully hasn't been told before. Um, and I hope you would agree that the book does that if you get a chance to read. Um, and for this slideshow, I'm just going to introduce you to my lady spies and a few of my favorite anecdotes and other personalities from the Civil War. This is uh, my first spy. This is Belle Boyd. Um, she was a 17-year-old girl living in the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia, when the war broke out. And Belle was fascinating to me. She was all id. She had absolutely no filter, not even for herself, probably especially not for herself. Um, just to give you a brief taste of her personality, um, I'm going to read a, a short excerpt of a letter she wrote to her cousin when she was 16, right before the war broke out, um, in which she is lobbying him to find her a husband. I am tall, Belle wrote. I weigh 106 and a half pounds. My form is beautiful. My eyes are of a dark blue and so expressive. My hair of a rich brown and I think I tie it up nicely. My neck and arms are beautiful and my foot is perfect. <laughs> Only wear size two and a half shoes. My teeth the same curly whiteness, I think perhaps a little whiter. Nose quite as large as ever, neither Grecian nor Roman, nor, but beautifully shaped. And indeed, I am decidedly the most beautiful of all of your cousins. Um, so Belle clearly had no problems with self-esteem. Um, and she kicks things off in July of 1861. Uh, just to paint the picture for you, uh, Union forces had just won a small skirmish in the Shenandoah Valley. And they were marching up the, alley with the uh, valley with the intention of having a 4th of July victory parade in Belle's hometown of Martinsburg, Virginia. Um, it's West Virginia today, but at the time it was Martinburg, uh, Virginia. And uh, they start entering her hometown, and they knock on doors, and they ransack shops, and they steal liquor, and they're generally causing all sorts of mayhem uh, among the residents. And Belle's waiting for them to show up at her house, and she's waiting with a pistol by her side. And so, sure enough, the Union forces arrive at her home. One of them threatens to raise a federal flag over her home, and Belle's mother steps forward and says, everyone in my household shall die before you raise that Union flag over our house. And one of the soldiers lunges at her mother. This is all according to Belle. And Belle, according, being the cool, common, collected person that she was, decides to shoot the soldier dead. And she gets away with it. She claims self-defense and gets away with it. And she's very emboldened by the fact that she gets away with it. And she decides that the Confederate cause needs her services. Um, she has many relatives and family friends in the Confederate Army and uses those connections to sort of position herself as a low-level spy. Um, but Belle takes herself and her new role very, very seriously, as you can see here. Um, this is Belle wearing her Confederate garb. Um, and she became known as a notorious seductress. Uh, one northern reporter uh, wrote that she was, quote-unquote, closeted for four hours with Union General James Shields and that she subsequently wrapped a rebel flag around his head to celebrate this conquest. Um, one of her other paramours, and I filed this, this is why I love nonfiction, I filed this under things you cannot make up. One of her other reported paramours was a man by the name of Major Dick Long. Um, <laughs> I always feel like a 12-year-old boy telling that uh, anecdote, but I mean, how could I resist? Um, but she was really sort of an interesting person. She was incredibly overt um, with both her sexuality and her opinions, which was really rare for a girl during this time period, especially a 17-year-old girl. I like to say that it, uh, she was sort of like if Sarah Palin and Miley Cyrus had a 19th century baby, um, it would have been Belle Boyd. Um, so men were quite taken with Belle Boyd. They liked Belle. Uh, women, not so much. 
Uh, many of them devised rather unflattering nicknames for her. One of them was the fastest girl in Virginia, or anywhere else for that matter. Um, but she would go on to have many interesting adventures during the Civil War, and we'll get into a few of those as I go on. This is my second spy. Uh, this is Private Frank Thompson, who was with the 2nd Michigan in the Union Army. And Private Frank Thompson came into the war with a bit of, of a secret. Uh, Private Frank Thompson was actually Emma Edmonds and had been living as a man for two years. Uh, and Emma Edmonds had quite an interesting backstory herself. Uh, she was born and raised in Canada, and she had a stern and, and sort of abusive father. And he had married all of her older sisters off and arranged marriages one by one um, to, to farmers in the neighborhood. And Emma watched as each sister sort of settled into this dull, drab life with her arranged marriage. Uh, and Emma did not want that for herself. Um, she was an adventurous sort. She craved a different life. She craved excitement. And she decided the only way she was going to avoid being arranged, uh, having an arranged marriage to a man was to become a man herself. So one day when she was about uh, 17 years old, she decided to cut her hair, bind her breasts, uh, trade in her women's dress uh, for a man's suit, and she began calling herself Frank Thompson. And she migrated to the United States and started working as an itinerant Bible salesman, just going door to door selling Bibles. And she began hearing about uh, the drumbeat of events leading up to the Civil War. Abolitionist John Brown was in the news. And she did a, decided that she wanted a piece of that. Um, she wanted to be in on that action. So in the spring of 1861, um, she was in Detroit, Michigan, and she decides to enlist in, in the 2nd Michigan. Uh, and you might ask, how did she pass the physical examination in order to uh, be admitted as a private in the Union Army? Uh, good question. Uh, the, the short answer is that you know doctors across the country were supposed to conduct very thorough medical examinations, but they all flouted these rules. You know they had quotas to fill. They needed to get the bodies out there quickly. So they really only cared if you had fingers to pull a trigger, if you had teeth to rip off powder cartridges, and if you had the feet to march. That was pretty much it. So Emma passed handily. The more difficult test, of course, was how did she pass muster with her comrades? You know, she was in close quarters with these men um, all day and all night. They drilled for hours every day next to each other. It, it was, you know, they lived side by side. Um, and I did a lot of research on this, and Emma was a, one of an estimated 400 women in both North and South who disguised themselves as men to enlist and fight for their respective sides. And I came to the conclusion that um, the main reason these women were able to get away with this, because nobody had any idea what a woman would look like wearing pants. You know, people were... <laughs> It's, you know, it's hard to think. People were so used to seeing women's bodies pushed and pulled in these exaggerated shapes with corsets and crinolines um, that the very idea of a woman wearing pants, let alone an entire army uniform, was so unfathomable that it was hard to see even if she was standing right in front of you. Uh, so Emma, of course, also had an advantage, having lived as a man for two years before joining. She had all of her mannerisms well honed. Um, and she uh, started a very lucrative and um, impressive career with the 2nd Michigan. She witnessed some of the bloodiest battles of the war, uh, went on some espionage missions, served as a nurse. Um, but all the while, she not only had to fear you know, death by the rebels, um, she also had to fear discovery of her sex. Um, if anyone discovered she was a woman, she could be arrested, she could be charged with prostitution, and most certainly she would be kicked out of the army, um, which to Emma would have been the worst fate of all. She wanted to stay and fight. Um, and all was going smoothly for Emma until she very unexpectedly fell in love with a fellow Union soldier, uh, this rather dashing gentleman by the name of Jerome Robbins, um, who was also with the 2nd Michigan. 
Uh, and who was a, a, a devout Christian, just as Emma was. And one of the great joys of researching this book was finding Jerome Robbins' diary at the University of Michigan, in which he um, had, had a few entries about his friend Frank Thompson. And they were all along the lines of, there's something funny about my friend Frank Thompson. I can't quite put my finger on it, but a mystery seems to be connected with him. And I, I just don't know what it is. Uh, so, of course, Emma had to make a decision. Did she keep uh, her true self hidden, or did she uh, take a risk and tell Jerome who and what she really was and let the chips fall where they may? Um, and chronicling their evolving relationship was uh, one of the most interesting storylines to me uh, with the book. This is my third spy. This is Rose O'Neill Greenhow, uh, pictured here with her eight-year-old daughter, Little Rose, her namesake. One of, I should say, several namesakes, the sake excuse me, namesake she had, um, which also gives you a little insight into her personality. Um, she had a rather interesting background as well. Um, her entire life had fallen apart in the years leading up to the war. Um, she had lost five children in four years, if you can imagine that. Um, she had lost her husband in a freak accident. And she had lost her access to the White House. Um, this is somebody who had been friends with high-ranking Democratic politicians in the years leading up to the war. She had even been a very close advisor and confidant of uh, President James Buchanan. And she lost all of that when Lincoln and the Republicans came into power. And she was really quite desperate to regain some of that and to make sure that the South, as she knew it, um, retained some control and autonomy. Um, so in the spring of 1861, uh, when a Confederate captain approached Rose and asked her if she'd be willing to run a Confederate espionage ring in Washington, D.C., she jumped at the chance. And she began cultivating sources. Uh, and by cultivating, I mean seducing. Um, <laughs> One of her most important sources, reportedly, was uh, this gentleman. This is Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts, um, who was not only an abolitionist Republican, but he was also Lincoln's chairman of the Committee on Military Affairs. Um, here is a little excerpt of a love letter he reportedly wrote to Rose. You know that I do love you. I am suffering this morning. In fact, I am sick physically and mentally and know nothing that would soothe me so much as an hour with you. Um, so you can imagine they had some pretty lucrative pillow talk, um, and he was uh, somebody who was very important in, in Rose's uh, espionage operation. This is Rose, in, Rose Greenhouse Cipher. Um, I found this at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and was just fascinated by these symbols. Um, if anybody's familiar with Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Gold Bug, it's sort of similar to the cipher that he writes about in that short story um, with these mysterious-looking symbols concealing these different letters, numbers, and words. Um, if you look down at the bottom left, uh, you'll see the symbol for Lincoln, which was an inverted triangle uh, bisected by a slash. Now, Rose, just to give you uh, a hint of her feelings toward Lincoln, she had two nicknames for the president. One was Beanpole, and the other was Satan. <laughs> Um, so the, the depth of her animosity uh, was pretty severe. Um, but Rose spent hours learning the cipher, studying it, practicing the symbols, um, so that she would uh, be able to encrypt her dispatches and send them off to the, her Confederate generals and her Confederate sources. Um, if she did not have time to write a message in code, she devised other ways that she might communicate with her Confederate scouts. She called them her scouts, uh, just other people in the spy operation who would um, take messages from her and, and deliver them or vice versa. Um, she memorized the Morse code. And at certain appointed times during the day, one of her Confederate scouts might take a glimpse at her window and watch as she raised and lowered the blinds according to the dots and dashes of the Morse code to transmit messages. 
Um, and if she were on the street and needed to get across a message right away, um, she could achieve the same effect by precisely fluttering her fan, according to the dots and dashes of the Morse code. Uh, so Rose was a pretty smart lady and rather ingenious with her spycraft. Uh, this is one of my favorite discoveries. This was also in the National Archives. Uh, and just to give a little bit of context about this, uh, everybody here probably knows that um, Lincoln and the North really expected the war to be over in 90 days. They expected the war to be a short three-month ordeal. They were going to meet the Confederate Army at the first Battle of Bull Run, which was, of course, Manassas in the South. They were going to beat, win them at Manassas um, and then move on to Richmond, capture Richmond, and the war would be over. Easy. Well, of course, Rose Greenhow and the Confederates had other plans. And in the weeks leading up to the Battle of uh, Bull Run in July of 1861, Rose got her information from her various sources, and she encrypted a dispatch, and she summoned a 16-year-old courier named Betty Duvall, a little neighborhood girl, to her home at Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. And she sat Betty down at her vanity and wrapped up her dispatch in this little piece of black silk, and then coiled the black silk up in Betty's hair into a, a, a little bun. And she told Betty that she was going to deliver this message to Confederate General Beauregard. Um, she merely had to just uh, cross the lines, wave to the Union sentries, and they would think she was a simple farm girl on her way home from the market. They wouldn't bat an eye. And sure enough, Betty did exactly that. She passed all the Union sentries and went on to General Beauregard's headquarters, undid her hair in dramatic and romantic fashion, and produced this note which really just confirmed some information that the Confederates suspected about Union troop numbers and placements um, at Manassas. And, of course, the Confederates were ready for the Union at Manassas and um, develop, uh, you know, handed them a resounding defeat that was not only humiliating, um, but just uh, sort of shook up everybody's notion that this war was going to, to be a short and rather bloodless one. Uh, this is one of my sort of the, the most odd things that I found in my research and I thought was pretty fascinating. Um, this was taken about in the 1890s. If anybody's familiar with historical fashion at all, you can see this is in Civil War era clothing. It's, it's later. But these people were reenacting something that happened 30 years earlier at the Battle of Bull Run. Um, that's how legendary this became. Uh, and, and to tell you that story, um, all of the Washington, D.C. civilians who supported the Union and people in that general vicinity who were Union supporters decided that they wanted to go out and watch the Battle of Bull Run just for entertainment. They decided it would be a good idea to pack up some picnic baskets, pack up the children, you know, tumble into the carriage, and drive on out to the battlefield and lay out their spread and just have a lovely day watching the battle unfold at, at Bull Run. Um, <laughs> Little did they know that it was going to develop into such a, um, a, a horrifying, bloody affair in short order. Many of them, um, you know, left their crashing champagne bottles, their glasses. Um, they dropped their parasols and their shawls. Their hats were flying. Um, so many, many of them drowned in Bull Run Creek in their efforts to escape. Some of them got captured by the Confederates and ended up in Richmond jails. It was bedlam. Um, and these people, I just love the fact that 30 years later, um, they're sort of reenacting reenacting that on the battlefield. This is my fourth spy. This is Elizabeth Van Loo, who was really the polar opposite of Rose Greenhow. Um, whereas Rose was very brazen and outspoken, Elizabeth was quiet and cautious and discreetly cunning. And whereas Rose was this celebrated beauty, everybody always raved about Rose's great beauty, um, Elizabeth, according to one of her neighbors, was never as pretty as her portrait showed. <laughs> <Yeah>. Rare! 
<laughs> Poor Elizabeth. Um, but Elizabeth was a brilliant, brilliant woman um, and also had an interesting background, uh, as it happens. She was born in Richmond, but as a girl was sent to Philadelphia um, for schooling. And while she was in Philadelphia, she came under care of an abolitionist governess, and she internalized those ideals. And when she returned to Richmond, um, she you know, was appalled by the institution of slavery, and she decided that when her father died, she was going to defy his wishes and free all of the family slaves. She also spent her significant inheritance buying slaves for the express purpose of freeing them. Um, and people in Richmond didn't know quite what to make of Elizabeth. They thought she was this benign oddity. You know, she was the spinster who lived with her mother in this mansion in Churchill, which was Richmond's wealthiest neighborhood. Um, they just thought she was a sort of strange bird, um, but relatively harmless. But after the war broke out, it was very dangerous for Elizabeth to be known to be such a staunch abolitionist and for her to have those p opinions openly. And people were very wary of her, um, and people became violent toward her. Confederate detectives followed her wherever she went. Um, her neighbors sent her death threats. Uh, she was in constant terror for her life. Um, but nevertheless, she decided that she was going to follow through with her plan to uh, build a union espionage ring in the Confederate capital of Richmond. And she began recruiting people from all walks of life to do this. One of them was her brother. This is John Van Loo. And one of another great pleasure of researching this book was uh, uh, connecting with one of his descendants, uh, John Van Leeuw had two daughters, and I spoke at length with the great-grandson of one of his daughters. Um, who, and he gave me some really fascinating information about Elizabeth's spy ring that had never been published before. And I'll give you a little taste of that. It mostly had to do with the family's uh, hardware business. Um, John had the idea of using the family's hardware business in his espionage operation. And for example, he would take blank business orders and fill them out as if they were typical business paperwork. But every number he wrote down would correspond with certain military terminology. Uh, for example, 370 iron hinges might mean 3,700 cavalry. 30 anvils might mean 30 batteries of artillery, and so on. So if he, uh, Union, excuse me, if Confederate uh, guards examined his paperwork, it would just look like normal business documents. But as soon as he got to northern lines, he was able to decipher the information and, and pass it along to his union sources. So it was a, quite crafty on his part. Um, but I think Elizabeth's greatest coup as a spy master was placing a former family slave as a spy in the Confederate White House. This is Verena Davis. This is Jefferson Davis's wife, the first lady of the Confederacy. And in the winter of 1861, she put out a call that she needed servants. She was staffing her house. Um, she needed re reliable um, servants to help her in all manners of, uh, of activities and, and duties. And Elizabeth decided to pay her a social call, one Southern lady to another. And she said, well, I have a girl for you. Her name is Mary Jane Bowser. She's not very smart, and she stumbles in the kitchen, but she's loyal, and she'll serve your family well. So Verena Davis agrees and very gratefully hires Mary Jane Bowser. Now Mary Jane Bowser had been born a slave in the Van Loo family and uh, was freed when she was about four years old. And Elizabeth took a special liking to her and really considered her one of her, uh, sort of her own daughter. Elizabeth never had children, but she sort of took Mary Jane under her wing in that way. And little did anybody know that Mary Jane Bowser was not only literate, but highly educated and gifted with a photographic memory. So whenever she was uh, dusting Jefferson Davis's desk or cleaning the children's nursery, she was also sneaking peeks at his confidential papers and eavesdropping on all of his conversations and reporting all of this verbatim back to Elizabeth. 
Um, so really an invaluable source for Elizabeth to have in the Confederate White House. And to make all of this uh, even at another level of danger to this whole enterprise, John Van Loo, Elizabeth's brother, was married to an ardent Confederate sympathizer. Um, and they were all living under the same roof, the same mansion. And so they were conducting all of this espionage work right under the nose of somebody who would not have hesitated to report even her own husband if she suspected him of treasonous activity. Oh, suspense. Oh, this is one of my favorite characters uh, from the Civil War. Probably needs no introduction. Uh, General Stonewall Jackson, uh, who was sort of the rock star of the Civil War and, and my personal Civil War boyfriend, I have to admit. Um, but he, women loved him. He was sort of idolized. Uh, he was an eccentric character, but women idolized him. Um, and there was one of my favorite stories about him took place in the Shenandoah Valley in 1862, right before his legendary Valley campaign in the spring. And he was in a hotel lobby, and women spotted him, and they ran at him in great swarms, and they began pawing his buttons and at his coat and clawing at his beard and pulling at him. And Stonewall <laughs> countered with this great line. He took a step back and said, ladies, ladies, this is the very first time I've been surrounded by the enemy. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, Belle Boyd, and I, I probably needless to say, Belle Boyd, our 17-year-old Confederate spy, um, idolized and worshipped. Uh, she was obsessed with him. I think that's not even too uh, drastic to say. She was obsessed with Stonewall Jackson. In fact, she told Northern reporters that she wanted to, quote, occupy his tent and share his dangers. Um, which, if I were Stonewall Jackson, would have frightened me more than anything the Union Army had in store. Um, the fact that Belle Boyd wanted to share my tent with me. Um, but she was very uh, interested in proving herself to him. She, she wanted him to know that she was a, a serious contributor to the cause, and she was desperate to earn his respect, which made for some very interesting activity in the spring of 1862. This is, uh, is um, Stonewall Jackson's counterpart in the North. This is Union General George McClellan. Um, as you might discern from his Napoleonic stance here, he also had quite an ego. Um, he, in fact, told people that God himself had sent him to save the Union. And he uh, was, was definitely the rock star of the North. He was brought in after the disastrous defeat at Bull Run to restore morale and to whip the Army into, the sh into shape and to try to uh, decide how to answer the Confederate win swiftly, a, a decisive answer to the Confederate victory at Bull Run. Um, but the problem with McClellan was that he was a bit timid. Um, he, he always was overestimating the number of Confederate troops. He was always badgering Lincoln for more troops to, to battle the Confederates, who were always, um, never had the manpower that the Union did, despite what McClellan thought. Um, and, and therefore, you know, just basically did a lot of nothing. Um, and I will say that his men idolized him, they respected him, and I think that's partly because he wasn't sending them to battle. <laughs> Uh, I think they probably appreciated that. Uh, Emma Edmonds, a.k.a. Private Frank Thompson of the 2nd Michigan, was one of his men at the Army of the Potomac, and she idolized him as well. Um, but Lincoln, of course, got increasingly frustrated with McClellan's inactivity. People were even accusing him of being um, secretly uh, sympathetic to the Southern cause. He was a Democrat, after all. Um, and uh, he countered Lincoln's attacks with his own, saying things like, Lincoln was, quote, nothing more than a well-meaning baboon. Um, and, of course, their relationship only became more acrimonious as the war went on. 
This is, I know I've said this before, but this is absolutely one of my favorite cartoons from the Civil War. And just to give you a little bit of context about this, um, one of the Union's main strategies against the South was to enact a blockade along 3,500 miles of Confederate coastline, basically starving the South of food, coffee, weaponry, mess, medicine, um, uh, bullet, weaponry, anything that, uh, not only that the South needed to fight the war, but things that the Southern civilians needed to live. Um, and it was very effective immediately. Um, it began having dire consequences in the South right away uh, on civilians and soldiers alike. But in response to this, an equally effective smuggling operation sprung up in its place, and it was mostly headed by Southern women. And this cartoon, which is called Crinoline and Quinine, celebrates Southern women's ability to smuggle things across the lines um, to, for Southern soldiers. Uh, just to, you know, if you take a look at this, you can see that they use their crinoline, um, which is the rigid cage-like structure that could reach a diameter of six feet. I mean, this was a large hoop. And you can imagine all sorts of material that might be tied to the crinoline um, and smuggled across the lines. And just to give you a little uh, statistic about that, uh, one woman managed to conceal inside her hoop skirt a roll of army cloth, several pairs of cavalry boots, a roll of crimson flannel, packages of gilt braid and sewing silk, cans of preserved meats, and a bag of coffee. That was the contraband tally for a single crossing. Um, Belle Boyd was sort of the queen of this, the, the inland blockade smuggling, and she specialized in smuggling weapons, and she also enlisted several other groups of Southern women to enlist to, uh, to help her in this endeavor. And one day in the fall of 1861, the 28th Pennsylvania awoke to discover that 200 sabers, 400 pistols, cavalry equipment for 200 men, and 1,400 muskets were missing. <laughs> um, this was all a result of Belle Boyd and her various uh, groups of female smugglers. Um, and this, to me, was just one of the most fascinating uh, parts of women's roles in the Civil War, how they were able to take society's constructs about womanhood and femininity and really exploit them brilliantly for their own purposes. And they used their gender as both a physical and psychological disguise. You know, physically, they're hiding things in their hoop skirts and up in their hair and on their person. And psychologically, whenever any of these women were accused of treasonous activity, the standard response was, how dare you? I am a defenseless lady. How dare you accuse me of such things? I, I could never. Um, and, and it worked. Um, you know, these women, for the most part, were, were either above or below suspicion. And um, it, it would be quite some time before people figured out that they were much more dangerous than they appeared to be. This is uh, an interesting story about uh, the smuggling operations as well. Um, this is a doll by the name of Lucy Ann. Today, she lives at the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond. Um, but during the war, she was quite a popular toy among Southern mothers for a very specific reason. Her paper mache head could be filled with quinine um, and smuggled across the lines. So mothers would buy these dolls, stuff the heads full of quinine, and hand the dolls to their little girls and say, just cross the lines and don't let the, you know, don't let the, union, the bad union men touch you. They all taught their children to hate union soldiers. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they smuggled quite a, a few, uh, you know, 
uh, little heads of quinine in this regard. And I, I just thought this was interesting. It showed um, that Southern mothers, a, a, a large number of them, enlisted their young daughters in their espionage efforts. Rose O'Neill Greenhow, in particular, um, was very dependent on her eight-year-old daughter, little Rose, and used her constantly to send messages back and forth and to do various things that, that would seem very questionable. Um, but ju it just goes to show you how um, how fervently they wanted to belong to the cause, how much they wanted to contribute, and how it was worth it to them even to risk their own children um, for their, for their uh, beliefs. Now this is, uh, again, one of the, the most, I think possibly the strangest thing I discovered in my research. I will just preface it by saying that. And I'll tell you the story as it was told to me. Um, I was at the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond, and the curator came out with this object in her hand. And she said that a few years earlier, a woman came in with this, carrying this, and said that her, her uh, ancestor had been a Confederate spy. And he would, um, you know, coil little um, scripts, little tiny little dispatches into a, a scroll and tuck it in this object and then hide it in the place least likely to be searched. Um, I will say that the curator came up with a name for this object. It's not my name. The name was the anal acorn. Um, <laughs> So I do not know how many Confederate spies were subjected to the anal acorn. Um, but I thought, you know what, this is something that was not in my history book about the Civil War. So I wanted to put it in my book about the Civil War. Now this is a, a cart, if I could just back up about the uh, blockade. This is a cartoon um, that's sort of a macabre insight into how bad the blockade got toward the end of the war. Um, by 1864, uh, the, the effects of the blockade in the Southern society were so dire, people were literally starving. Um, bacon was $20 a pound. That's $300 in today's money, if you can imagine that, just for a pound of bacon. Um, so people, and inflation was out of control, everything was uh, uh, prohibitively expensive, and people were starving. And Southerners were quite understandably angry about this. And this cartoon reflects that anger. And it's sort of a wish list of things that they wish they could be smuggling across the lines. Um, if you look at the writing underneath the, here, there's a goblet made from a Yankee skull. Uh, beneath that, there's a necklace made of Yankee teeth. Uh, there's a paperweight made of Yankee jawbones um, and other similarly gruesome items. And uh, most of these did not exist. Um, but I will say that uh, there were several stories circulating about women, southern women wearing jewelry made of Yankee bones. Um, it was quite a, a popular thing to do in some circles in the South, is to wear the jewelry of Yankee bones and brooches made of Yankee bones. So while these things did not necessarily exist, um, there was a little bit of truth to it and just reflected um, the anger that was uh, prevalent throughout the South by the end of the war. This is President Lincoln, uh, pictured here with uh, the famous detective Alan Pinkerton. Um, and he was very instrumental in uh, Secret Service work during the war. He was initially hired by George McClellan, um, and he had two, a, sort of a two-fold job. Uh, one, he was supposed to figure out Confederate troop numbers and troop positions, and he was no better at that than McClellan. He, too, was always overestimating troop, Confederate troop numbers. He was really terrible at, at it. What he was good at doing was ferreting out Confederate spies. And one of his very first missions was to conduct a stakeout on suspected Confederate spy Rose Greenhow. Um, and one of my favorite scenes in the book, it's that August of 1861, 
Pinkerton and two of his best men go to Rose Greenhouse home on Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. Uh, I will pause and say that Rose, you know, she lived on Lafayette Square, and she always said that her home was, quote, within rifle range of the White House. Um, so it's a torrential downpour, and Pinkerton has to stand on two of his men's uh, shoulders just to peer into her parlor. And what does he see but Rose O'Neill Greenhouse sitting on her couch with a man that Pinkerton recognizes as a union captain. And they're looking over various official-looking papers and maps, and Pinkerton is furious because, obviously, this is a traitor's union captain. Um, and a few minutes later, Pinkerton looks again and sees that Rose and this traitor's union captain are passionately kissing, um, which infuriates him even more. And he declares that Rose Greenhow is going to be public enemy number one, and he's not going to stop until she and her Confederate ring are dismantled. Um, and it, it begins a cat and mouse game that sort of plays out throughout the book. And this, again, was a, a very fascinating um, insight into women's roles in the, in the Civil War. You know, women were supposed to be loyal. Their loyalty was assumed. Um, you know, women were victims of war. They weren't perpetrators of war. Um, but these, everybody was slowly coming around to the notion that, you know, women were not only capable of treasonous activity, they were capable of executing it more deftly than men. And this presented a problem um, for, for the North and for Pinkerton. Uh, one of Lincoln's officials had this great line, one of my favorite lines uh, in the book. And you can almost hear the, the perplexed anguish in his voice when he said this. Um, the quote was, what are we going to do with these fashionable female spies? <laughs> Um, and it was quite a conundrum. They, you know, they had, to, they had to grapple with that. If they treated them too harshly, they risked elevating these women to the status of martyr. Um, and if they treated them too leniently, they risked them having, um, collecting valuable inter information and, and um, doing some major damage in terms of battles and, and the outcome of the war. Um, so, so that was something that, that the North had to figure out fairly quickly. And this is my final slide. This is, um, I preface this by saying there were several spies I found really interesting um, but could not fit into the main narrative. Um, some of them got cameo appearances because I, I couldn't just bear to leave them out of the book entirely. Um, this is one of those. Uh, this is Benjamin Franklin Strangfellow. He was uh, five feet tall. He had blonde hair, blue eyes, and he weighed 94 pounds. According to one of his comrades, he had a waist as wispy as a woman's. Um, and he had a rather, un he was a spy for Confederate General Jeb Stewart, and he had a rather unorthodox approach to his spying. Uh, he would find out when the Union was holding its military balls, and he would dress himself up in an elaborate gown, and he would call himself Sally Martin, and he would go on over to the Union military ball, and he would wait to be asked to dance. And all the soldiers loved to dance with the dainty Sally Martin. Um, so every dance he was, he was asked, he would inquire as to, what Ulysses S. Grant was up to and what the North was planning, and he would get, get more information with each dance, and he would report all of this back to Confederate General Jeb Stewart. And I'd like to include him just to, to show everyone uh, that the women weren't the only ones cross-dressing during the Civil War. Um, the men were in on that action, too. Um, so if anybody has any questions or stories of their ancestors they might share that I could use later on, I'd really appreciate it. 